This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of TKA coronal plane balancing from the recon section on orthobullets.com. To start off this review about TKA coronal plane balancing, it's important to realize that both the medial and lateral ligaments may be stretched or contracted with time. So it's essential to balance these ligaments in both the coronal and sagittal plane to obtain an optimum outcome. As far as pathophysiology, it's important to talk about the concave side and the convex side. The concave side includes tight ligaments that need release, and the convex side contains stretched ligaments that need tightening. And keep in mind that you must test balancing in both flexion and extension. As far as kinematic alignment, this is the principle of placing implants in more varus or valgus based on patient anatomy. So constitutionally varus equals a varus tibial implant and constitutionally valgus equals a valgus tibial implant. Keep in mind that outcomes are roughly equivalent with neutrally aligned knees. Now let's talk in more detail about a varus deformity, a valgus deformity, and a flexion slash contracture deformity. As far as the anatomy in a varus deformity, the medial side is tight, this is the concave side, and the lateral side is stretched, and this is the convex side. The goals in a varus deformity is to create precise bone cuts, release the tight medial ligaments, tighten the lax lateral ligaments, and balance the flexion and extension gaps by adjustment of polyethylene bearing thickness. As far as the steps of medial release, step one is deep MCL release to the mid-coronal plane of the tibia, Step two is medial osteophyte removal. Step three involves release of the posterior medial corner, specifically the posterior oblique ligament. Step four involves a medial tibial reduction ostectomy. In step five, you should consider a PCL release slash substitution if imbalance persists at this point. That is, if substitution is not initially chosen. In step six, you will release the semimembranosus, especially if there's an associated flexion contracture. In step 7, you will pie-cross the superficial MCL, and some favor the use of an 18-gauge needle to do this. And finally, step 8 involves a complete superficial MCL release slash the pes anserinus. However, this is rarely required even in severe cases. Keep in mind that this destabilizes the medial flexion gap, and you should consider a constrained prosthesis in this setting. As far as a differential release, this is performed with two components of the superficial MCL. Remember that if the posterior oblique portion is tight in extension, then you will release if it's tight in extension. And if the anterior portion is tight in flexion, then you will release if it's tight in flexion. As far as lateral tightening, use a prosthesis that is sized to, quote, fill up the gap and make the stretched lateral ligaments taut. If a polyethylene bearing thickness of greater than 15 millimeters is required to gain appropriate lateral ligament distension, consider use of a constrained prosthesis to avoid excessive joint line elevation. Moving on to a valgus deformity, that is when the lateral side is concave slash tight. Remember that as far as the anatomy, the lateral side is tight, this is the concave side, and the medial side is stretched, this is the convex side. The goals in a valgus deformity include creating precise bone cuts, releasing the tight lateral ligaments, tightening the lax medial ligaments, and balancing the flexion and extension gaps by adjustment of the polyethylene bearing thickness. As far as the steps of a lateral release in order, step one involves release of the osteophytes, step two involves release of the posterolateral capsule, step three involves release of the iliotibial band if tight in extension with the pie crust or release off Gertie's tubercle. 
Step four involves release of the popliteus if tight in flexion. Specifically, you will release the anterior part of its insertion, and for severe deformities, release both the iliotibial band and the popliteus. Finally, step five involves the LCL, where some authors prefer to release this structure first if tight in both flexion and extension. Other authors prefer to release the LCL last. If the LCL and popliteus require release, the flexion gap stability is lost, so consider a constrained prosthesis in this setting. And as far as differential release, this is performed by differentially releasing the IT band and the popliteus. As far as medial tightening, fill up the medial side until the medial ligament complex is taut. In severe cases, if a polyethylene bearing thickness of greater than 15 millimeters is required to obtain appropriate medial tension, consider a constrained prosthesis to avoid excessive joint line elevation. Finally, remember to avoid internal rotation of the femoral component. Internal rotation is common due to hypoplasia of the lateral femoral condyle. Internal rotation of the femoral component may lead to patellofemoral maltracking and a coronally asymmetric flexion gap. If posterior referencing is used, verify the femoral component rotation against the epicondylar and anteroposterior axes. Finally, let's talk about flexion slash contraction deformity. As far as the anatomy in this setting, the concave side is posterior and needs to be released. So as far as the steps of posterior release order, step one is the posterior femoral and posterior tibial osteophytes. Step two is the posterior capsule. Step three is additional resection of the distal femur. And step four is the gastrocnemius muscles, that is medial and lateral. All releases are performed with the knee at 90 degrees of flexion. This allows the popliteal artery to fall posteriorly to decrease the risk of injury. Remember that you do not want to address a contracture by removing more tibia, as this will change the joint line and lead to patella alta. Finally, let's talk about some complications, specifically a perineal nerve palsy. Keep in mind that correction of valgus and flexion contracture deformity has the highest risk of perineal nerve palsy. Again, correction of valgus and flexion contracture deformity has the highest risk of perineal nerve palsy. If a patient presents with a perineal nerve palsy in the recovery room, then take off the dressing and flex the knee, watch for three months to see if function returns, and if function does not return, consider nerve conduction studies or operative exploration to assess for damage. Coronal plane deformities of greater than 20 degrees cannot be corrected by intraarticular bone cuts and soft tissue balancing alone and requires an extraarticular osteotomy. Again, coronal plane deformities of greater than 20 degrees cannot be corrected by intraarticular bone cuts and soft tissue balancing alone and requires an extraarticular osteotomy. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 66-year-old patient is planning to undergo a right total knee arthroplasty. A mechanical axis view radiograph shows varus alignment of bilateral knees and medial compartment osteoarthritis. Placing the components in a kinematic alignment compared to neutral mechanical alignment would result in which of the following? And the choices are 1. Increased aseptic loosening. 2. Varus tibial cuts and valgus femoral cuts. 3. Lower rates of patient satisfaction. 4. Decreased range of motion. And 5. Increased reoperation rate. The correct answer to this question is 2. Varus tibial cuts and valgus femoral cuts. So kinematic alignment total knee arthroplasty is based on component placement to recreate a patient's natural anatomy. 
In the case of this patient, this would involve varus tibial cuts and valgus femoral cuts. To quickly review, kinematic alignment total knee arthroplasty is based on the principle of reestablishing a patient's natural anatomy. Many patients develop constitutionally varus or valgus knee alignment, in which placement of the arthroplasty components in relative varus or valgus positions would lead to symmetric mediolateral loading of the implants. This principle is further based on the idea that placing the components in neutral alignment may align the limb in an abnormal position to the patient, which may lower patient satisfaction. For varus knees, this implies varus tibial cuts with valgus femoral cuts. Bellamans et al. performed an observational study of 250 asymptomatic study participants to determine what percentage of the population has constitutionally varus knee alignment. The authors found that 32% of males and 17.2% of females had constitutionally varus aligned knees. Furthermore, constitutionally varus knees were associated with greater physical activity during the second decade of life, believed to be secondary to the Hooter-Volkman loading of the open physis. Lee et al. performed a systematic review of the literature comparing neutral alignment and kinematic alignment arthroplasty. Generally, the literature supported that range of motion, KSS, and WOMAX scores were equivalent, if not better, in kinematically aligned knees. Further, tibial components were in more varus and femoral components in more valgus. There were no differences in reoperation rates. Moving on to the next question. A 60-year-old male presents with significant left knee pain and end-stage osteoarthritis. He failed non-operative management and is requesting a total knee arthroplasty. His past medical history is significant for a left distal femur fracture that occurred when he was struck by a car 30 years ago. A standing full-length radiograph of his left lower extremity demonstrates a significant coronal plane deformity resulting from a previous distal femur fracture malunion. His femoral coronal plane deformity measures 28 degrees. When proceeding with the TKA, what must be done to address this patient's coronal deformity? And the choices are 1. Soft tissue balancing and intraarticular bone cuts. 2. Distal femoral medial closing wedge osteotomy. 3. Distal femoral lateral closing wedge osteotomy. 4. High tibial osteotomy. And 5. Hinge total knee arthroplasty. The correct answer to this question is 3. Distal femoral lateral closing wedge osteotomy. So coronal plane deformities of the femur greater than 20 degrees requires an extra-articular femoral osteotomy to achieve proper mechanical alignment when performing a total knee arthroplasty. To quickly review, coronal and sagittal plane deformities of the femur less than 20 degrees can usually be addressed with intra-articular bone cuts and soft tissue balancing. Attempting to correct deformities greater than this without an extra-articular osteotomy can compromise ligamentous stability. This highlights the importance of careful preoperative templating slash planning and obtaining full-length standing radiographs when clinically warranted. Although correcting severe deformities with staged or concomitant extra-articular osteotomies can be challenging, they are often successful when properly executed. Lahner et al. provided a retrospective case series and review article addressing severe extra-articular deformities with simultaneous femoral osteotomy and TKA in patients with osteoarthritis. In their 10-patient series, they were successful in restoring coronal alignment within 2 degrees of anatomic in all patients. They suggest securing the femoral osteotomy site with the plate or locked intramedullary nail, depending on the osteotomy site. Raj Gopal et al. presented a case series of TKA in 36 knees in the setting of extra-articular deformities. In this series, they treated all patients with intra-articular bone resection and soft tissue balancing to address their deformities. 
Femoral coronal, sagittal, and tibial coronal deformities successfully treated included 11 to 18 degrees, 0 to 15 degrees, and 12 to 24 degrees, respectively. Moving on to the next question. Preoperative images of a 64-year-old man who underwent a primary total knee arthroplasty show a valgus knee deformity with an associated hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle. Postoperative images show 6 degrees of internal rotation of the femoral component relative to the transepicondylar axis. The patient presents today complaining of persistent knee pain. The operative report states that the surgeon used a 3-degree external rotation guide based off the posterior femoral condylar axis to prepare the femoral bone cuts. Which of the following technical approaches would have helped to prevent this component placement error? And the choices are 1. Utilizing the 0-degree external femoral rotation guide based off the posterior condylar axis. 2. Adding an additional 6 degrees of external rotation to the guide. 3. Upsizing the femoral component. 4. Internally rotating the femoral component 6 degrees relative to the transepicondylar axis. And 5. Rotating the tibial component by an additional 6 degrees. The correct answer to this question is 2 adding an additional 6 degrees of external rotation to the guide. So of the available options, adding an additional 6 degrees of external rotation would have prevented this component placement error, specifically internal rotation of the femoral component. To quickly review, the posterior condylar axis, aka the posterior condylar line or angle, describes the normal posterior slope of the distal femur. This is typically measured to be 3 degrees of internal rotation relative to the tibial joint line. To create symmetrical gaps during TKA, 3 degrees of external rotation is usually built into the posterior cutting block, so the flexion gap is parallel to the horizontal mechanical axis. In valgus knees with hypoplastic lateral femoral condyles, this slope is usually greater than 3 degrees. Therefore, if standard posterior condylar referencing is used, there is tendency to create internal malrotation of the femoral component. In this scenario, the posterior condylar line preoperatively was measured to be 9 degrees relative to the transepicondylar line. As the standard 3-degree external rotation guide was used based off the posterior femoral condylar axis, this resulted in 6 degrees of residual internal rotation. Miller et al. looked at the optimal rotation of the femoral component using different rotations from 5 degrees internal rotation to 5 degrees external rotation. They showed that femoral component rotation parallel to the epicondylar axis resulted in the most normal patellar tracking and minimized patellofemoral shear forces early in flexion. These beneficial effects of femoral rotation were less reproducibly related to the posterior condyles. Victor et al. reviewed the literature on rotational alignment of the distal femur after total knee arthroplasty. The ideal angular relationships include a posterior condylar line that should be on average 3 degrees internally rotated relative to the surgical transepicondylar axis and 4 degrees relative to the perpendicular to the trochlear anteroposterior axis, i.e. Whitesides line. They state the optimal rotational alignment of the femoral component in total knee arthroplasty should be parallel to the transepicondylar axis, which is best measured postoperatively with axial CT scan images. Pagnano et al. reviewed 52 patients with primary knee osteoarthritis. They measured the posterior condylar angle or line intraoperatively to be on average 3.98 degrees with a range between 0 degrees to 9 degrees. In knees with varus joint lines greater than 4 degrees, where normal equals neutral, the posterior condylar angle was more internally rotated relative to the transepicondylar axis. 
Therefore, to prevent internal malalignment using standard components, the femoral component should be more externally rotated relative to the posterior condylar axis in this scenario. Moving on to the next question. The radiograph of a 68-year-old woman who has right knee pain that is limiting her activity shows severe preoperative valgus deformity. During total knee arthroplasty, what pathologic features are typically encountered? And the choices are 1. Lateral femoral hypoplasia, 2. Internal rotation of the tibia relative to the femur, 3. Medial patella tracking, and 4. Tight medial collateral ligament. The correct answer to this question is 1. Lateral femoral hypoplasia. So in patients with severe valgus deformity, problems frequently encountered include loose or attenuated medial collateral ligaments. Problems frequently encountered include a loose or attenuated medial collateral ligament, tight lateral retinaculum, and lateral ligamentous structures, specifically the lateral collateral and posterolateral corner, atrophic lateral femoral condyle, lateral patella tracking, and external rotation of the tibia relative to the femur. The hypoplastic lateral condyle can cause internal rotation of the anteroposterior cutting block if the posterior condylar line is used for rotational alignment. The medial soft tissues are typically attenuated and stretched. Moving on to the next question. Performing an isolated release of the popliteus tendon during a total knee arthroplasty is most appropriate in which of the following scenarios? And the choices are 1. Valgus deformity that is tight in extension. 2. Varus deformity that is tight in extension. 3. Valgus deformity that is tight in flexion. 4. Valgus deformity that is tight in both flexion and extension. And 5. Varus deformity that is tight in flexion. The correct answer to this question is 3. Valgus deformity that is tight in flexion. So an isolated release of the popliteus tendon during TKA is more appropriate in the setting of a valgus knee deformity that is tight in flexion. Lateral collateral ligament release is most appropriate for a valgus deformity that is tight in both flexion and extension. Iliotibial band release is indicated if the knee is tight in extension. For varus knee deformities, femoral and tibial osteophyte removal, release of the deep MCL, release of the posteromedial corner, release of the attachment of the semimembranosus and partial superficial MCL release may be sequentially indicated to achieve coronal balancing. The review article by Favorito et al. discussed the controversy over the correct order and sequence for anatomic release of the lateral structures, with some authors preferring not to release the LCL as the initial step. The case control study by Krakow et al. found good success with the lateral release in valgus deformity that had competent medial structures. In cases with incompetent medial structures, they reported good success with reconstruction and imbrication of the medial structures. And moving on to the final question, a 65-year-old woman with painful knee arthritis and a radiograph that shows end-stage arthritis with severe lateral compartment narrowing is scheduled to undergo a total knee arthroplasty. All of the following are risk factors for a postoperative perineal palsy except, and the choices are 1, preoperative flexion contracture greater than 10 degrees, 2, history of lumbar laminectomy, 3, female gender, 4, valgus deformity of greater than 12 degrees, and 5. Epidural anesthesia. The correct answer to this question is 3. Female gender. So the clinical presentation is consistent with end-stage arthritis in a valgus knee. All of the factors listed are risk factors for perineal nerve palsy except female gender, which is not a risk factor. 
To quickly review, perineal nerve palsy is a potentially serious complication of TKA in patients with a preoperative valgus knee deformity. Perineal nerve palsy is likely caused by lengthening of the lateral aspect of the knee and subsequent traction on the perineal nerve. It is generally recommended that patients be evaluated carefully for symptoms postoperatively. If perineal nerve symptoms are discovered, the knee should be flexed to relax the tension that is effectively being placed on the nerve. If perioperative nerve exploration or decompression is undertaken, the posterior border of the biceps femoris tendon is the proper site of identification. Adesuyi et al. published a retrospective review of 32 postoperative perineal nerve palsies in 30 patients in which they identified possible risk factors. Prior proximal tibial osteotomy, lumbar laminectomy, thought to be a, quote, double crush phenomenon, and preoperative valgus alignment of 12 degrees or more were all identified as risk factors. Other concerns included epidural anesthesia for post-op pain control, preoperative flexion contractures, and tourniquet time greater than 120 minutes also increased concern. Favorito et al. reviewed valgus total knee arthroplasty and reported that the most common complications of patients with the valgus deformity include tibiofemoral instability in 2% to 70%, recurrent valgus deformity in 4% to 38%, postoperative motion deficits requiring manipulation in 1% to 20%, wound problems in 4% to 13%, patellar stress fracture or osteonecrosis in 1% to 12%, patellar tracking problems in 2% to 10%, and perineal nerve palsy in 3% to 4%. That's all for this review about TKA coronal plane balancing. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.